I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before that train gets here this morning. Why do you think God saved you? Why do you think God saved you? And the other question is this. What do you think your purpose is on earth? First Peter 2 helps us answer those questions this morning. So go ahead and turn there with me. First Peter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 4 down to verse 10 so that we can actually have a, a grasp on why God saved us and what our purpose is as his people, his blood-bought people here on earth. I'll begin reading in verse 4. I will pause for the train, and you will have a Selah moment to stop and think about it, okay? All right, so Peter writes this in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Let's just pause here for a moment. Again, God's word is fresh and, and always encouraging. So let's start over again in verse 4. It says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, that's who he's talking about here, okay? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says this in verse 4. As you're coming to him, the one who is the living stone, the architect, the builder of the house, the spiritual house that you're a part of, you're being edified, you're being equipped, you're being built up to be something, to be holy priests, a priesthood, to be able to do something else in that priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices that are acceptable to God because of Christ. A sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of edification, a sacrifice of, of proclamation. Because you've been given the good news through Christ, who is the living stone, who is the, the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. In verse 6, he writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes, that is, trusts in him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But then he makes this contrasting statement here. He says those who stumble over Christ, those who disobey Christ, those who do not believe God's word are different from you. Because of God's grace. Verse 9 says, but you. Here's, here's, here's the deal. There's something different about you because of God's grace. Look what he says. But you are a chosen race. Chosen by who? Chosen by God. Chosen by God. A royal priesthood. A, a priesthood that's been set apart by God. A holy nation. Chosen and placed and set apart for God's praise on earth. He says, specifically, you're a people for his own possession. It means you've been bought by him through the work of Christ. You belong to God now. You're not your own. Here's the reason. 
Here's why he saved you. Here's why he chose you. Here's why he placed you into this priesthood. Here's why he made you separate from the world. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Oh, and then he says this once. Pause and think about this. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Specifically, God's mercy. His saving mercies through Christ. Now this is astounding stuff. This tells us why God saved us. This tells us what our purpose is on the earth here, saints. Peter gives us some clear answers here. Mainly, verse 9, part B, that you may proclaim Christ's excellencies. In 5 through 10, we learn that the church is made up of living stones, right? And Peter says that these, these living stones are chosen stones. They're, they're commissioned stones there in verse 9. They're consecrated stones. They're stones that are placed together in the community of the saints in the church. And we're all placed into the body for a divine purpose, for God's purposes. Not for our purposes, not for our self-esteem, not for our fun. We're placed here for God's purposes, which actually is quite edifying, quite purposeful, quite meaningful for those who were once not a people. Now we're God's people. What What a privilege you have. What a privilege we have in Christ. You are owned by God. God has set his love on you. And once he has done that, his love will never be removed from you. He loves you as much now as he did the day he saved you. It will never change because of what you have done. It will always remain the same because of what Christ has done. He saved you, though, to testify to what Christ has done. You want to know why you're saved? This is it. You're not saved simply just to get to heaven. You're going to get there by God's grace. You're not saved to have a comfortable life. The Bible actually promises quite the opposite. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You're not saved so that you would have happiness and joy. Actually, you have that abundantly in Christ, but that's not the reason that you've been saved. That's the benefits of salvation. The reason God chose rough Lumpy, dirty, ugly rocks was to shape them and conform them into stones in his temple that would magnify the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. You're fitted together for the glory of Jesus. We're fitted around the perfect stone. Though we are imperfect people, we are placed into this body to magnify the cornerstone. That's our divine purpose. And the way that that purpose is laid out and seen is the way we proclaim Christ publicly, corporately, personally. And how God chisels off the rough edges practically and progressively to make us look more and more like the cornerstone. Until one day, in glory, in heaven, we will be made like him, perfectly reflecting his glory. In the meantime, we want to proclaim that glory. We want to reflect that glory as much as is possible as his chosen people. That's why God saved you. 
Look for no other reason. You need no other motivation to live holy lives than this. God has a divine purpose for his church on the earth, according to what we've read there, especially verses 9 and 10. There in 9 and 10, Peter reveals the divine purpose of God's people on the earth. Here's your outline, okay? It's simple. Peter tells us in verses 9 and 10 that God's people are given, number one, a Christ-exalting mission. And number two, God's people are given mercy-driven motivation. You like that alliteration, Nate? Christ-exalting mission is what we've been given, and mercy-driven motivation is what we've been given. We're given this to move us into action. So we would display the goodness and the grace of our God here on the earth. Now, in this present age, not just in the future age, not just in the millennial kingdom, not just in some future time, but now, presently. In verse 9, that's what Peter's saying. He says this, let me read it again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Peter gives us our Christ-exalting mission in this verse. We are to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And listen, if you're wondering if that's your calling, all you have to do is look around and see that you're still here to know that this is your calling. If, if God wanted you in heaven, he would have brought you there when he saved you. But he left you here. And get this, church, it's not punishment. He left you here on purpose to display Christ and the power of his grace presently in this present age. You're here right now and not in heaven because this is God's will for you. God has a mission for you on the earth. Every believer that stays here on the planet after conversion, know this, you have been given a mission. You are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his glorious light. You proclaim him with your life, your transformed, progressively sanctified life, and more specifically in the text, you proclaim his greatness with your mouth. The gospel is not just social action. The gospel is a message about a savior who came for us personally. It's a message that needs to be proclaimed as we endeavor to care for society, show compassion to the world mercifully. But it must be declared. Social action, apart from proclamation, is a waste of time and you're just comforting people on their way to hell. We need to bring the message to bear as the reason that we care for these people. The reason that we are moved to mercy is because we've been mercied by God himself through Jesus Christ. And we need to share that. And that's what Peter actually says here in verse 9b. He's actually saying, look, I'm going to give you a purpose for why God chose you, why God placed you in this priesthood, why you are set apart as a holy nation. And so he begins to explain this by giving us a purpose clause for all you English people out there, English students. He gives us a purpose clause in the middle of this verse. That you. You see that? He's going to explain to us why we have been 
chosen. Right. Why we have been commissioned, why we have been consecrated by God. He says all this took place for this very reason that you. Not your pastor, not your spouse, not this evangelical leader, but you individually and in the body as one are to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. Peter's saying to all these individual stones in this spiritual house, you have been saved for this reason, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Notice there, when he says that in verse 9b, he says the word him, that's referring all the way back to verses 4 and 5, to the living stone, that's the foundation of our hope, the one who is worthy to be exalted and praised. And then this this one word that sort of stands out in verse 9 that I think is fascinating. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word to you. That's not important. What's important is the unique placement of this word in this text. In verse 9, you see that word proclaim, that you may proclaim you're saved, you're chosen, you're, you're set apart, that you may proclaim. Proclaim is a very, very special Greek word. This is the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. It's specifically chosen here for a specific purpose. Because we've been given a specific purpose. I believe that's why the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write this. This word, proclaim here, means this in the Greek. It means to publish or to advertise by lifting up the voice. It was actually a phrase that we used, was used for going through the streets and declaring something new had happened. And it actually required the activity and the action of the one who'd been given this message to go forth with their voice. He's using a very special word that reveals God's divine purpose really for equipping the church on the earth. Why are you here this morning? Are you here just to, to, to be a consumer or are you here to actually be trained and equipped so that you can be a publisher of the excellencies of Christ? The church is called together to learn how to proclaim Christ's excellencies. The way you understand that word excellencies, though, is this way. We're called together to be equipped and trained as a spiritual family, a spiritual household, so that we can proclaim the excellencies, and excellencies would be, be this, so that we could proclaim the abilities of Christ, so that we could proclaim the power of Christ, so that we could proclaim accurately the mercy and grace of Christ. So when he says excellencies, it's not just, you know, Jesus is, is really great. That's what we want to tell you. Jesus is great. Well, yeah, that's, that's great to know that, but what do you mean by great? Well, let me tell you something about his abilities to save sinners. Here's what my Savior did. Here's who my Savior is. Here's what His power has accomplished in my life. He says that's why we're called together as a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as, as a holy nation. We're called together so that we can learn how to accurately publicize Jesus. We're called to do this for His praise for the good of others, 
for the edification of the church. We're called to advertise Christ, make his excellencies widely known, declare his abilities, his power, his mercy everywhere you go in every area of your life because he is worthy to be praised. His name is to be exalted. You and I, as blood-bought people, chosen people by God's grace, we are his testimonies. We are his witnesses. We are his ambassadors, his representatives here on this planet. Therefore, we need to know how to publish him accurately. We need to know how to proclaim him accurately, advertise Christ accurately. That's one reason you gather here weekly to grow in the truth. You're here to be equipped, I hope. I hope that's why you're here. I hope you're here to actually be trained and equipped as you worship together with the saints, but being trained and equipped so that you can go into the world and fulfill your mission. We're called to do that. And actually, every aspect of this worship service helps equip you for that. Think about it. Our, our song service is didactic. You know what I mean by that? It's, it's teaching. There are lessons in these hymns, in these songs that we sing. There's theology being basically exegeted, drawn out, and brought to you through the songs. When we come together, that edifies our minds because we're thinking about Christ's work through these songs, aren't we? Right? How firm a foundation, right? How, how amazing is God's grace, right? We think about those things as we, as we sing them, and it equips us to declare them when we leave this place. And not only that, we come here not only to sing about the works of Christ, we come here to learn about Christ's will for our lives practically from the text when you hear preaching. You want to know God's will for your life this morning? Proclaim Christ's excellencies. That's God's will. It's not an option. It's a great commission. It's not an option. You want to know? You want to walk in God's will? You want God's will to direct your life? You want to know what you should do in life? Well, first start here. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. When you come here, you're being trained in how to do that. Trained in what God's will is for you as his people. And not only that, when we come together, we're coming together to sing, to learn, but also to share, not just in what Christ has done in the past or what his will is for us presently, but in how his love works through us corporately. We're here to share in Christ's love. And as we, as we share in his love, as we grow in his word, right, as we sing about his works, then we're equipped to go into the world. Then we're edified. Then we're built up. And that's what Peter is saying here in chapter 2. He's saying, as living stones, you're being built up in him. Why? That you may learn how to proclaim his excellencies. That's why we're here. Church, this is your mission. You know, you maybe think of missions as, as going to Mexico, going to New Guinea. But if your mission isn't starting here, you'll never make it there. If you're not committed to this in the Sunday school hour, you're certainly not going to be committed to it in the bush somewhere. You are here to grow in the knowledge of Christ. That is your mission in life. And you're growing in this so that you can share it. That's your purpose for being here on this planet 
Let me, let me just share a couple of things with you here practically for a second. I want you to understand something. Because we live in an upside-down world, and, and we live in a man-centered world. We don't live in a Christ-centered world, do we? Now, the church needs to be Christ-centered, but our world is certainly not Christ-centered, is it? It's not at all. But sometimes the world has a way of getting into the church, getting into our thinking, getting into our lives, our actions. And I want this, this message this morning to help transform that. I want you to understand something, because in America, we exalt a lot of things above Christ, mostly ourselves, our status, our stuff, right? Look what I have. Look what my job allowed me to get. Look what, who I am. We need to remove that kind of thinking from our minds. We need to proclaim Christ's excellencies, not our own. But we have to start practically. Understand this. I hope all of you are, are working and, and giving your life for the service of Christ in your job. But listen, your job is not your purpose for existing on the planet. Don't ever let your job become your identity. You have an identity that is in Christ. And he has placed you in your job for a purpose. But your job is not your purpose for existing. Your job exists for the purpose of advertising. For advertising Christ. And you do that by the way you work. By the way you work in your occupation, you open the door up for what? Evangelism. People want to ask you about the hope that lies within you because the way you work. They see that your identity isn't wrapped up around your job. It's wrapped up around serving Jesus. You're his child in that place for his purposes. That's your purpose for working. That's why your job exists. And that speaks to all those who are working here this morning. But there are a group of people here who aren't working this morning, our students and our kids. And students and kids are being influenced by specific people in their lives, their parents, right, who are working, and hopefully working in such a way that they're advertising Jesus. But parents, we need to understand something. Parenting isn't your purpose. It's not. It's part of God's plan, but it's not your purpose for being on the planet. Parents, understand this. Raising good children is not your purpose for living. That is not why you exist. That is not why you're on the planet. Understand this. Your kids were given to you. They live so that you can teach them to look to Christ for goodness, to look to Christ for grace. They, they need you for this reason. God gave you your children for this reason. This is why you've been called to be a parent. This is your purpose. You are to proclaim to them about what Christ can do to sinners like us. How he can forgive people like us. How he can transform our desires on the inside. Your job isn't to make good kids. All you'll do in that is make self-righteous ones. Your calling and the reason you've been given these children is to teach them to look to Jesus' righteousness. Understand, that's why you're a parent. 
God made you an evangelist when he gave you that child. Again, parenting should not be your identity. It's your duty. It's your stewardship. And in that stewardship, you are called not to, again, make good kids, but make bad kids know there's a good God who saves sinners like us. You publicize Christ to them daily. Now, another group that are here this morning, that I know are here this morning, besides parents and people who work for a living, we have students in our midst this morning. Understand this. Students, your mission in life is not to get an education to secure your future. That is not your purpose, and that is not your mission. It is not. Your mission on earth is to proclaim Christ because He has already secured your future. He has already made sure that your future is secure through His works. Therefore, your education should serve as your mission. You're going into it to proclaim Christ and his promises that keep you in the midst of hostility and persecution when you stand faithfully as his ambassador. Students, you need to seek to proclaim Christ as your major. That's what he's called you to do. You proclaim him as your major on your campus. And listen, I promise you this. You'll rejoice in your mission and you will feel God's blessings even when you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, I say all that, and I know that you believe all that. I know everyone here would affirm most of this that I've said. I believe you know this is our mission. This is our great commission, right? It's a, it's a command. It's not a, you know, a suggestion. It's a command from the Lord Jesus Christ that we would proclaim His name, His greatness in every area of our life. But, but I know this practically speaking. I can say that to you very easily. But it's hard to still do it, even for me, even for Nate. We still fight with our flesh, our unredeemed flesh. The flesh wants people to like us, so we back down from the truth. The flesh wants to be accepted, so we shave off the edges. That's why we need to be encouraged. That's why we need to be equipped. That's why we need to be shored up in our faith, so that when we have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. We'll do so with, with reverence, with gentleness. We'll do it with Christ-exalting boldness as well. And we won't back away from our mission. I know this, this call to proclaim Christ as our mission can be intimidating. I know that. And again, we all need encouragement to do it more faithfully, don't we? Is it just me? Maybe it's just me. I need encouragement to do it faithfully. I need to hear the testimonies of those who are doing it faithfully. Not perfectly. Faithfully. Faithfully. It's not the perfection of your life we're talking about here. It's the direction, right? The direction you're going is is in a way that would magnify and make much of Jesus in every area of your life. And you know what? Sometimes you get to do a lot. Sometimes you only get to say a little. Sometimes you, you fall on your face in doing it. Sometimes you're very accurate, you're very able and equipped to do it. In those cases, God is glorified because he's working through you. The other cases, you're growing in grace and sanctification. Praise God for it. He'll humble you. He'll make you desperate for truth. 
Most of the time when I fail to articulate the gospel accurately, it's because I've neglected the gospel practically. I haven't thought about it. I haven't focused on it. I haven't rejoiced over it. Not that I don't know it. I know it. But have I rejoiced in it? If I'm rejoicing in it, it comes out passionately. It comes out willfully. To help you with this feeling of intimidation, God has granted us the gift of fellowship, the church. That's why this this fellowship is really so important. This weekly gathering is actually very encouraging in, in preparing us to stand in the world and pursue our mission. And that's, that's also why I'm really excited. We're really excited about the new church merger that's taking place here in our midst. We're going to have more souls in this building with us to encourage and equip us. Isn't that exciting? Where, where we have maybe fallen short, others will come alongside. That's exciting. We're going to be made into a body, each part functioning as God has designed so that we can all with one voice proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's the beauty of this. It's amazing. The merger is something that helps us in a corporate sense to be prepared personally for this mission we're called into in our lives. This this corporate mission that we have as a church is to exalt Christ in the pulpit, in the Sunday school class, in the women's ministry, in the student ministry, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ so we can equip you and teach you how to do it personally. That's why the church exists. Ephesians 4 makes it clear that God gave teachers, pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of service. Pastors serve with them, but we're called to equip you, to help you, to know how to proclaim the excellencies of Christ faithfully. So with that said, I want to help you pursue your mission practically this morning, personally this morning, and and I want you to learn how to fulfill your mission by learning to proclaim the excellencies of Christ biblically. I'm going to give you three three points that, that I think are important about the excellency of Christ that you need to learn to proclaim from Scripture, okay? We must learn how to, number one, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ's nature, his nature according to Scripture. Hebrews Hebrews 1, verse 1. We must learn to proclaim what Hebrews 1 says. We must, we must know this. We must know it in our hearts and know it in our minds and be able to articulate this accurately. It's important if you're going to talk about Jesus to talk about who he is by nature. And the writer of Hebrews helps us do that. He says, long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That name, Jesus, means Savior. That's the name. For to which of the angels did God ever say, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you or sent you out. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, God the father says, your throne, O God, meaning Jesus here, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, that's creator Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, meaning Christ is eternal. He's the eternal creator, God. They will wear out like a robe. You will robe them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. He's he's immutable. He doesn't change. He's eternal. Your years will have no end. If, If you want to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, this is where you have to begin. We must proclaim that Jesus is God. He is God who, in this text, even tells us, took on flesh to rescue sinners like us. What an astounding Mind-blowing truth. Only God could do this. Only God could rescue sinners from his own wrath. And he did that through his own son. Through God the Son taking on flesh, God's justice, his justice was meted out. The justice that our sins demand, it was meted out to his son in our place as our substitute. And God the Son absorbed all the wrath of God the Father that he had stored up. An eternity of wrath that we would have to live in and under in hell. In one moment at the cross, it was poured out and only God the Son could have withstood that kind of punishment and yet live and that's what happened god the son took our place and if you're going to proclaim the excellences of christ you got to start here he is god in human flesh secondly we must learn how to proclaim the excellencies of not just his nature but of christ's work according to galatians 2 15 You must be able to articulate the greatness of Christ's accomplishment. Especially in a time when men think that their accomplishments can earn them favor with God. We must be clear that God demands absolute obedience and none of us can meet that demand. But Christ did in the flesh. And it's through his work, by faith alone, in Christ's work alone, we are saved by God's grace alone, for the glory of his name alone. Look what it says in Galatians 2, 15, about Christ's excellent work. For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, notice this, is not justified, that is, to be declared right by God judicially, forensically. Legally, 
We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by trying to keep the law. You're not made right with God. You can't be made right with God. He'll go on to tell us more about that. But here's how you're justified. He says, but, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's faith alone. In Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You know why? We're all sinners by nature. We're defiled from the beginning. And anything we do comes out defiled. Isaiah says that our righteous deeds, our our best deeds in the flesh, at least humanly speaking, he says they're like filthy, blood-stained garments. They're defiled. And if we're going to exalt Christ with our mouth verbally, if we're going to proclaim his excellencies, we need to proclaim the excellency of his work accurately. We must proclaim that Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' sacrificial death alone saves sinners. That is it. No one is saved any other way. No Old Testament saint was saved any other way than faith in what God promised he would provide through his sacrifice. Only those who trust in Christ's work and repent of self-righteousness and sin will be saved. If they trust in their good deeds, Paul says in Galatians, let them be accursed. They will be accursed. Because Christ, he alone could do this. No mere human could do this. This took the God man, the righteous one, to live our life and die our death to secure our salvation. So we we go there. And thirdly, we must also learn to proclaim the excellencies of Christ's, not just his nature, not just his work, but here's the really important one that's often left out. We need to proclaim the excellencies of Christ's lordship according to Scripture. Colossians 1. Colossians 1.13. And I'm going to actually be really focusing in on verse 22, but we need to begin in verse 13. Speaking of God the Father in verse 13, it says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, that's Jesus, in whom we have... Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in verse 15, he is speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And, notice this, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have first place, preeminence. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell fully, by the way. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order, notice this, in order to display his lordship. That's what he's going to say. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We must proclaim, we must proclaim that submission to Christ's lordship is the mark of salvation. It is the mark of regeneration. He says, Jesus did all of this. God did all of this to save you, brought you out of darkness, placed you in the what? In the kingdom of his beloved son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign one, the ruler of all creation. And we, his people, we're not going to submit to him personally and practically. He saved me. I'm in the kingdom. If there is no desire to live for him, don't fool yourselves. If he is not Lord over all your life, he's not Lord at all in your life. He's Lord in spite of what you think. Either you're in rebellion to him or you're in submission to him gladly. But we must proclaim this, church. If we want to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, it is this. He can change sinners. He reigns over us sovereignly in love, conforming us to his image by his word and his spirit. And we will submit to him willfully if we belong to him. Only those who do this, only those who seek to obey and exalt Christ have any reason for assurance in their salvation. If you're not willing to do this, if you're not desiring to obey him, seek his will, follow his direction. Honor his name through your actions, your lifestyle, your thinking, your words. If you're not desiring to do it, I'm not saying you're doing it perfectly because no one here is. But if it's not your desire, don't fool yourself. You're not in the kingdom. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you're not in the kingdom. You've been saved by God Almighty. And he has a right to rule you. And he will do so and you'll respond in joy because of his excellent care for you. We have to learn to proclaim the fullness of Christ. Not just the, the warm and fuzzies. Come to Jesus, he'll make you happy. Come to Jesus, you get out of hell. You know what? Those, th- those statements are true. He will make you happy. You will escape hell. But that's not why you're coming to Jesus, is it? I hope it's not man-centered. I hope you're coming because of the excellency of his nature, the excellency of his work, the excellency of his lordship, his rulership, his love for us. And I hope you're coming to declare his greatness in spite of the benefits. Even if there weren't any benefits, would you serve Jesus? If this was the only life you've been given, the only life you're ever going to experience, would you serve Jesus? If if you have to pause and think about that, I urge you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If this is the only life we're given and we can know Christ, it is worth living for him every moment of our life. Now, those are the things that we're called to proclaim. That's what we should proclaim, okay, on our mission. But now let me tell you quickly how and why we should proclaim that from 1 Peter 2.10. Let me tell you how and why we should proclaim all these things about Christ. Listen, according to verse 10, we, we should proclaim Christ mercifully. 
because we've been mercied. There should be such compassion in our hearts when we declare his nature, declare his work, declare his lordship. Listen, saints, if there's not a tear in your eye and joy in your heart when you evangelize, you're doing it in the flesh. You need to have mercy because you've been mercied. You need to express mercy because God has mercied you when you reach out to others. God's word gives us a message that puts us on our mission and he gives us our motivation for that mission here in this text. Verse 9, at the end again it says, you're, you're called to do this to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here at the end in this thought of Peter He's telling us this is your motivation for your mission. The motivation for our mission on earth is found in this revelation, saints. God has mercied us through the incarnate work of Jesus. That's why we should be merciful in our ministry, in our proclamation, in our evangelization. Christ called us out of darkness so that he could make us mercied missionaries. In this present age, in this text, when he talks about that you were called out, those who are called out of darkness, the Greek word is kaleo, you are called out of darkness through Christ's accomplishment. It means that you have been summoned. That's what this word called means. This word called means to be summoned to appear before a superior. It means a summons to appear in court in the secular understanding. This call in verse 9, it describes God's merciful and effectual call to salvation. This is an example of God's irresistible grace. Let me, let me diffuse what, what people might think or not think about irresistible grace. Here's what it is. Irresistible grace is expressed this way. When God, for no merit, no reason in, in you, no effort you have extended... In mercy, in grace, God opens the blinded eyes of your soul. He opens your eyes, your ears, your heart to see the irresistible beauty of Jesus Christ. That is for his praise and for our good. This call is the irresistible call of God to salvation. You were called, he says, irresistibly to come before the king to be saved so that you can declare Christ's greatness throughout the world. Now you've been mercied by this, by this calling. Now you can see the wretchedness of your sin and the glorious grace of Christ. Now you hate sin, you love Jesus because God opened your eyes by calling you. This is something that Peter understood perfectly in the context of his culture. We miss this today because we don't live under a monarch. But when he's talking about Jesus being the ruler and the king and the, the one who's saving us, he knows this. When the sovereign God summons you, it's not a choice whether you come or not. It's an effectual calling. It's not an invitation. When the king says, come, you come. Lazarus didn't wait. He got up and went when Christ said, come forth. 
Listen, this call that he's talking about here is one that's expressed by God's mercy toward us. This is a spiritual awakening of the soul. This is the miracle of regeneration that he's talking about here. This is God's great mercy being extended to us. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Aren't you thankful that that God in his mercy reached his hand down and plucked you out of the darkness and filth that you lived in and loved and that blinded you from seeing the glorious grace of Christ? Aren't you glad that he was the one who reached down and opened your eyes through someone proclaiming the excellencies of Christ? You see, all of us here have been graced by someone else proclaiming Christ. We've received God's mercy through someone else's faithful mission. That should be our motivation now to go out and do this ourselves. Look what it says again in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once, he says, once you were nothing more than God's enemies, worthy of his wrath. But then, but then... God called you through Christ's sacrifice and mercied you. He didn't give you what you deserved. Instead, he gave it to Jesus on the cross. Is that motivation enough to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? I hope it is. We were all once objects of God's righteous wrath, but in mercy and through Christ's work, We're now objects of his divine love and called into his divine service. That's our purpose. Church, listen to this. You are God's mercied missionaries. What what an honor that is. That's why he called you. That's the purpose for your regeneration. That's the purpose for your calling. He left you here on purpose. His purpose. Right? You are a divine missionary. You have a divine mission and you have merciful motivation here as Christ's ambassadors by God's grace. We were mercifully called to to pursue this with all of our energy, to proclaim the greatness of our Savior. And we know that when we do this, when we do this faithfully, when we do this continually, we don't always see success. We don't. We don't always see the fruit, do we? But we're called to continue on doing this because God is the one who actually plants the seed. God is the one who actually causes it to grow. All we're called to do is proclaim. We're broadcasters. We're gospel seed casters. We go forth with confidence that God will save his people from their sins through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's an example of that in Acts. Turn there quickly as I conclude. In Acts 18, there's an example of a man who was motivated by the mercies of God to keep on pursuing his mission, even when he felt as if there was no evidence, there was no fruit of transformation, there was nothing happening that that looked good. Yet because of the goodness of God's grace in Christ, he continued. And the, the motive of God's mercy moved him to persevere in his ministry. And I want this to be an example to us. In Acts 18, 4 to 10, 
we see in this that people were resisting the Apostle Paul's mission and his message. And listen, Paul wasn't Superman. He was like all the rest of us. He struggled with discouragement. He, I am sure, wanted to quit at this point. I'm done. God, they're yours to deal with. Let them have it. I'm done. These religious hypocrites, I'm sick of them. Right? Let's go to another town, another village. But that's not what happened. Even though Paul was frustrated, maybe tired, maybe, God steps in and motivates him with mercy. Look what it says. This is just the mercy of God toward this this evil, wicked city. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. There's his frustration, right? And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus or Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Church, that's an act of mercy that God expressed to to Corinth. Paul was ready to leave. He was tired These religious hypocrites that he was dealing with in the synagogues had burnt him out. And he went to the Gentiles, yet he knew there would be persecution to come. And God says, don't be afraid. I'm going to express mercy to many of my people in this city who have yet to hear the proclamation of Christ. And you're my instrument. You're my vessel. You're my tool. So God says, go on speaking. Go on praising and exalting Christ's excellencies in this pagan and perverted city. This city was so corrupt you couldn't even imagine it. It looks worse than any city you can imagine here in the United States presently. It was a sexually perverse place. It was a pagan, idolatrous place. And yet God says, I have many In this city who are my people. So, Paul, continue on. This is your mission. Go out in my mercy toward my people who are in this city. Go and call them to see the excellencies of Christ in the gospel. God in mercy did that. And he sent him out. And listen, in the midst of that wicked and paganized society, sexually perverted society, God birthed a church. A bride for Christ was raised up in Corinth of all places. I find that encouraging. I find that hopeful for Ada. We need that to motivate us this morning. God in his mercy has planted this church here because he has many people yet to be saved in this city. And we are his light. We are his voice. And we are to publicize Christ publicly, corporately, throughout every area of our lives. Church, I really believe that's why God planted the church here. That's why God is bringing us together with others to expand the church's work in our community. 
I believe God wants our church to be a lighthouse to the lost and a safe haven to those who have been rescued by his grace. But we need to be prepared for that. We need to be able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ when people come in. God will not birth and bring up his children in a place where they'll be neglected. They need to be fed and nourished. And that begins in the body of Christ, proclaiming the excellencies to them practically, growing in those excellencies personally. And I want us to be ready for that. I believe God is going to bring in many souls into this building that we can disciple, that we can train, that we can evangelize through his mercy and because of Christ's great work. That's our mission. We need to be ready for that. Listen, I want you just to think about this as I conclude. Our mission, Phil, is right outside these doors. It's right in your job. It's right in your home. It's right in your school. That's where you're called to publicize the excellencies of our Savior faithfully and joyfully. That's your mission, church. That's your purpose for being. That's why God calls you to salvation. Let his mercy this morning motivate you for your mission. Let's pray.